0: Welcome to the Wilds cast. Today, Rabbi Wilds talks with Sarah Hurwitz. She's the author of Here All Along Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. After a decade as a political speechwriter, serving as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama, a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama, and chief speechwriter for Hillary Clinton on her 2008 presidential campaign, Sarah Hurwitz decided to apply her skills as a communicator to writing a book, and no one is more surprised than she is. It was a great conversation. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Thank you all for joining the Wildscast MGE's podcast. I am so excited about our guest today, uh, Sarah Hurwitz, and please tell me if I mispronounce.
2: No, but perfect. Um,
1: Sarah was a White House speechwriter, Uh, from 2009 to 2017. She's an incredible personality that I've been following, a lot of people have been following, and uh, it's really an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for being Uh, with us, Sarah. Uh, Thank you for
2: having me. It's great to be here.
1: Awesome. Really, thank you. Um, She started out as a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama, Um, I think Obama's doing a podcast today with Bruce Springsteen, but everyone's listening to this one.
2: Clearly. Uh, I mean, come on.
1: (laughs) So uh, she was a senior speechwriter for President Obama and then served as chief speechwriter for the First Lady, for Michelle Obama. We're going to hear a little about that transition. And Sarah worked with Mrs. Obama to craft uh, many of her addresses, including her 2016 Democratic National Convention speech and her political speeches during the 2016 campaign cycle. She traveled with the First Lady uh, across the United States to five different uh, continents and worked closely on policy issues affecting young women and girls as a senior advisor to the White House Council on women and girls. Um, Sarah has been profiled in the Washington Post, in People.com, the Boston Globe, The Guardian. We'll go on and on and on. She was uh, featured in the Forward Uh, As one of the 50 Jews who impacted American life 2016 and 2019, she is a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School and the author of an amazing book, which I really am recommending all of our listeners get. It's called Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and the Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism. I cannot think of a more appropriate book for the Manhattan Jewish experiences. You know, Sarah, we are a outreach and Jewish uh, Jewish educational organizations. So this is perfect. And the book really speaks about Sarah's movement uh, to becoming more observant and a vibrant Jewish spirituality, Um, something that Michelle Obama actually tweeted about. uh, She said about Sarah's book, and I quote, Sarah Hurwitz is a brilliant writer with a big heart and a kind soul, and I'm sure here all along, that's the name of the book, will reflect her thoughtfulness and eloquence which I depended on for so many years. Uh, her book is a, a really a wonderful kind of guidepost for uh, young Jewish people that are checking out and exploring their Judaism. Um, she points out in the book that God and Judaism were always there all along. I love the name of the, to- the, the talk. So thank you, uh, the book, excuse me. Thank you so much for being with us, Sarah. Let, let's get into it a little. Um, you were working in the White House. Yes. You went through this breakup. You we were pretty open about that, so I figured I could bring it up yeah uh, you were looking for something to do after you broke up with this guy. You had one night free a week, and you decided to spend that night at the local j c c where you walked into a i guess a deeper connection with your own Judaism. Tell us um what that was like why you decided to do that and Are the JCCs looking to hire you as a a spokesperson now?
2: (laughs) So, you know, it was actually pretty random. Uh, I just happened to get an email advertising this intro to Judaism class at the JCC. And I had this time on my hands. I was kind of bored and lonely. So I just figured, you know, I'd grown up, you know, without much Jewish background, kind of, you know, slogged through Hebrew school, did the twice a year high holiday services, which were kind of boring and incomprehensible. And once I became a bot mitzvah, I just thought, okay. Nothing to see here, right? That you know, I'm a cultural Jew, but if I want actual meaning or spirituality, I'll have to look elsewhere. But Judaism is my heritage. So after I break up with this guy, I hear about this class and I just thought like, well, I should know something about my culture, my heritage, right? Like I might as well. Could have been a, a paintings class or a ceramics class. I mean, it really, I was just looking for something to do. I was not on some deep spiritual journey, but, and you know, the class itself was very standard. You know, just a standard class, standard teacher, But what I found in that class really blew me away. You know, there was so much wisdom about how to be human, about how to be a good person, about how to lead a worthy life, about how to find profound spiritual connection that was not just God is a man in the sky who controls things, which I do not and did not then believe. And so I decided I just wanted to explore further.
1: It's interesting, and I'm just curious, These, all those beautiful things you just said about the Jewish faith, like, um, were you not aware of that before? Meaning, I mean, you had, you used the words, I I wrote them down, boring and incomprehensible Mm -hmm. about, um, which I would say is a good summary of the collective experience of so many young uh, American Jews. You know, is it that we, we just don't know the profundity and brilliance that lies in our heritage? Um, because it wasn't, uh, you weren't exposed to it as a child and all of a sudden this class, which is not like a blow away class, but like, but just, I uh, just talk yeah. to them a little more. So,
2: I mean, I guess if your only points of contact with Judaism each year are two kind of, you know, very long and kind of incomprehensible services why would you, what what would lead you to think that Judaism actually has profound ethical and spiritual wisdom, that it actually has something to teach you about how to cope with your challenges today, how to lead a life that you can be proud of? Like there's, you don't really see that in the High Holy Day services, unless you know a fair amount. You know, if you really understand the liturgy, if you understand and you can use the Siddur, the prayer book, then you will see a lot of the profundity, but that that takes some real education. So I don't, it's not clear to me why the average American Jew would know what Judaism has to offer, right? And I think, and I actually think the problem is not Hebrew school, right? A lot of people like to blame Hebrew school, but that's, that's not the problem. Hebrew school is actually fine. The problem is that so many Jews like me, and I'm talking very much about myself, we stop learning at the age of 13, 20 years later, we have kids and think, well, someone's got to make these kids Jewish. It's not me. I don't know anything about Judaism. So, I'll just dump the whole project of making my kid Jewish on some Jewish educator, and I'll right. make them do it in two hours a week and so the problem, I think, is more that we don't grow up, right? We never become adult Jews. we never really engage with the actual life wisdom that Judaism has to offer us as adults
1: yeah i I, I appreciate the honesty um, it's hard <laughs> It's hard to hear, but it's the reality, and it's you know we had a program it only lasted for a few years m g s for twenties and thirties. Primarily, but we had a program called MGE for Youth, which I, which the tagline was make your child's bar slash bat mitzvah the beginning, not the end. Because most bar bat mitzvah ceremonies are like graduation ceremonies from Judaism until, as you just very eloquently put it, you know, you you want, you have to raise your own kids. And then like, what are you doing? How, what am I using? And then all of a sudden, oh, stick them back in the Hebrew school so they can get what I had. So that's exactly I mean you have to know that's, It's exactly why I started the program For 20s and 30s because I think yes. It's a perfect age for people Who are exploring You know what it means to them now Before they make that decision as to who to marry Um And uh I mean I just I appreciate that because I just I find that that Is um, and who decided That Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Should be the two times a year Jews should be I never got that
2: I never got it either it is you know there's a lot of beauty and meaning to those services if you've taken, you know, if you've had the time to really learn about them, but this is not our most accessible work. And to make that the only point of contact is quite strange. And I'll tell you, you know, our tradition is not the most accessible tradition. I'm just going to be honest about that, right? We don't proselytize. So we don't actually have a long tradition of kind of translating Judaism for people who know nothing about it. So I actually, it was very hard for me to learn about Judaism as an adult. I had to spend hundreds, thousands of hours learning and studying, and people don't have that time. That's crazy to tell people that they should do that. And I actually wrote my book for the whole sole purpose of saying, okay, I've done the thousands of hours of work and I have distilled down for you what I think is the most radical, life-transforming, brilliant, moving, inspiring wisdom that will change your life today. Like, I've done the work for you. You can just read this book because that's the book I was looking for. That's what I was looking for.
1: It's... it's um. It's so interesting that you mentioned, you know, because we don't proselytize, I guess we haven't gotten good at sort of um, putting, you know, Torah wisdom into quicker phrases and bite-sized, and, and, and bite bite-size, you know, portions for people. Um, that, that's a really profound yeah. thought, you know. And 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 by the way, I want to mention something about Yom Kippur. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Years ago, there was a woman who came to see me about her son, a, a man who came to see me about her son. and. And he kept saying, you know, he's rebelling. Hmm. I said, why is your son rebelling? Because he's about to marry this non-Jewish woman. So he called me up to meet with her and um, with his son, excuse me. So I said, good, just give me a little background. So when I have the meeting, I can be a little more informed. And he goes, well, I brought him to Yom Kippur services every year. (laughs) I said, okay, great. What else? Give me something else. Quiet. Quiet. Yeah. Yom Kippur, Rabbi, we sat, we fasted, we prayed. I said, okay, Jewish camp, something, what can I work off of here? Give me something to, to work with. And he was like, uh, you know, he just repeated the same thing. I said, sir, why do you think your son is rebelling? If that's his exposure, you know, I don't want to hit a person when they're down, but we expose our children to Yom Kippur, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. I'm a Orthodox rabbi. I believe in Yom Kippur. But it's, um, it's part of a bigger picture that people are just not seeing. I always love to say Simcha's Torah <laughs> might have been a better, <laughs> better choice.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Or Purim,
1: or Purim, which is this week, you know, let, let me, um, I, I appreciate that, uh, um, that honesty. Um, you have extensive knowledge, um, and extensive acknowledgements in the book. Uh, I just want to go back to your original story. Um, you didn't acknowledge the guy you broke up with. <laughs> Did you, um, did you ever go back and thank him for launching you into, you know, because I mean, I guess.
2: I don't know if, I mean, we, we've been in touch over the years. I don't okay. know if I formally thanked him, but you know, right. you know, he's mentioned in the book, I let him know. before. Okay. We All right. <laughs> right. I also, I you know, you. it's funny. I just need to, to go back to just a point you made, you know, about the idea of marrying someone who's not Jewish as rebelling. You know, I do a lot of work with Jews in their twenties and thirties. And I'm, I'm actually seeing a lot of people in interfaith marriages who are embracing Judaism passionately, really passionately. And I, you know, I'm not convinced that two disengaged Jews who don't really like Judaism marrying each other and having kids is a better way to continue Judaism than a Jew and a non-Jew marrying who gets excited about Judaism and decide they want to pass it on to their kids. I, I'm I'm a little, I would put my bet on the latter couple just personally, but I, so I just wanted to put that out there. And I hear
1: you. I hear yeah. you. I, I, how important do you think is it for the non-Jewish person to convert?
2: So I think it depends completely. I think it depends. I mean, sure, I think couples where that person wants to convert, you know, maybe there'll be more Judaism in the home, but frankly, maybe not. Depends on why they're converting. It depends on their passion. Sometimes people don't want to convert because they feel it will be hurtful to their family of origin. So they say, listen, I'm committed to raising Jewish kids. I'm committed to having Judaism in my home, but I don't want to lose this connection to my family. I think every situation is different, and I think there's a lot of ways to embrace people and welcome people. I mean, 72% of non-Orthodox Jews are now marrying people who are not Jewish. Um, You know, people are welcome to stand at the shore screaming at a ship that sailed four decades ago. Mm -hmm. I prefer to say, hey, what an amazing opportunity to welcome more people into our tradition and to share it with them and to show them why it's so powerful and valuable and to get them excited about being part of it and taking it on. That's my perspective.
1: Yeah, listen, no, I appreciate you sharing that. that that is a correct number, seventy-two uh, percent, and uh, I'm a big proponent of conversion because um, the statistics also demonstrate that less than twenty percent of interfaith families, where the person who isn't Jewish has not converted, raise their kids Jewish. Um, and 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 I'll tell you, as a parent, you know, um, kids have these radars. I call them hypocrisy radars. Even if you're not really being hypocritical kids just smell it so if like you want me to be jewish but you're not or you're you want me to and you have that by the way in all segments in the orthodox community also you have a parent who sends their kid to a day school and kid comes home starts doing shabbat things that the parent isn't they can't handle that they need consistency so i would just i i I mean this is my personal opinion i'm a big proponent i don't i'm not a proselytizer because i don't believe judaism you know i don't believe that you know um you know unless you're Jewish you can't have a relationship with God and God doesn't love you we don't believe in that as far as Judaism is concerned but um it it usually doesn't work unless there's a commitment and often i've found the commitment is greater on the part of the non-jew coming in sure you know, and i've had a lot of stories like that you know
2: i also think it depends a lot on the community i mean i think you know even until recent times you have a lot of communities where the non-Jewish member is not fully welcomed. You know, I guess if they convert, it's better. But I I guess what I'm wondering is, has anyone done a study of communities that fully welcome and enthusiastically embrace interfaith couples? You know, in that case, is it true that the person who doesn't convert is not, they're not as likely to raise Jewish kids? That's actually something I'm curious about because I think a community... Welcoming, not just welcoming, but really actively engaging, actively saying, how can we share? What can we teach you? We're so happy to have you as part of us. I think that makes a big difference. I think, you know, when an interfaith couple comes to a rabbi who says like, and they say we want a Jewish wedding and the rabbi says, no, I can't. You know, I don't know if that's bringing someone closer to Judaism or further away from Judaism. It would certainly push me away from Judaism. So I, I guess that it just depends on the couple.
1: Yeah, it does. Um, I found, I mean, look, this is purely anecdotal. I don't know right. of any study. It would actually be really interesting. You know, it says, you know, uh, I always like to say, also, don't judge Judaism by the Jews. Because <laughs> it, it says thirty-six times in the Torah of the Haftatagere, you shall love the stranger. <laughs> Right. It's mentioned again and again and again. I just taught this last week that even though there's a Torah prohibition in uh, abusing any person, yes. um, physically or verbally, lo uh, Lotonu yes. It's um, it, it's it's the prohibition of uh, of uh, it's actually translated as oppression or abuse. But the Torah goes out of the way for a almana, which is you know widow, orphan, and stranger. Stranger is the convert. God takes personal offense, so to speak, when that happens, because they're more vulnerable in society. They're less, you know, um, but uh, I I, it's a major, major issue. It's a big part of my rabbinate. um, And I don't think that Judaism is a little boys club just for Jews. I think it's open for anyone who wants to come in. But there needs to be a certain, you know, I think, interest and commitment Um, and, and kids pick up on that. Yeah. You know, let me let me take you back a little back into your political world. I'm really fascinated by this. Um, You worked for Hillary Clinton in the 2008 primary. And then you went to work for Barack Obama. Um, Was there I I know everyone throws the two of them together now, right? (laughs) You know, but then I remember I remember there was a lot of, you know, was that problem for you? Like, how did were you like a how did that work for you?
2: I have to say the Obama people were surprisingly welcoming because I I shared that concern, right? It had been a very toxic primary. I was worried that people would be suspicious of me, that they wouldn't trust me, but it was actually just the opposite. You know, uh, Barack Obama actually called me, I think my second or third day in the office and just said, I'm so happy you're here. Thanks for being part of the team. We're so happy to have you. I think probably my fourth or fifth day, they brought me in to meet with Mrs. Obama to help me with her, to help her with her democratic convention speech. And I'd actually kind of objected to doing this because I was saying, guys, I was just on a rival campaign that spent 17 months opposed to her husband. Like you really do. I don't think this is a great idea, but she could, she could not have been more welcoming, more cordial, more kind. She literally, after our first meeting, she invited me to her home in Chicago, to their home. And we sat in her living room for 90 minutes. And she was said, she just said to me, here's, here's who I am. Here are my values. Here's what I'm passionate about. And I was really moved by the openness, by just like the welcome. And I will say, you know, there was some good natured teasing for the first (laughs) few weeks. And Mm -hmm. a lot of it came from people on the campaign who I had known from previous campaigns, right? So there was the kind of good natured, you know, mixing it up. But no, I felt, I really felt welcomed right away. And you then saw a similar thing happen when, he asked Hillary to be his secretary of state. So that was pretty much, you know, I, had, I had already seen that pathway in, so it didn't surprise me at all when he asked her.
1: Interesting. And and what was your life like? I mean, did you have a life? Your, your book, you describe this time in your life when you dropped a dish on the floor and you didn't stop to clean it up for two weeks because you were just so busy. Um, I mean, and how, what was it like? And, and you took this, I mean, you were connected Jewishly. How, how did you kind of, balance that? Was there Shabbat? Tell, tell us a little.
2: Yeah, it's quite hard. I mean, I actually think, you know, the Torah telling us that not only should we rest on Shabbat, but our, our animals and our servants should rest on Shabbat. That's a really interesting, it's very interesting because I actually think you can understand that in a more metaphorical way to kind of imply that like during the week you start to feel like an animal, right? You You kind of try to, you start to feel just like kind of like a workhorse, just plowing through, just doing what needs to be done. You know, I felt very much like a servant often because that's what you're doing in public service, right? You are serving your country, you're serving your boss. And, you know, I I do think, I actually went through a period in the White House for a few months when I actually had a pretty rigorous Shabbat practice. You know, I didn't check email during Shabbat. I really shut down. And that was just tremendously valuable. And my right. colleagues were so supportive and so proud of me they, could, they were like, oh, this is great. We're not going to bother you. This is so wonderful. Like There was real support for that. I ended up after a few months just deciding that, you know, given the increasing workload that was coming up in the last year and given the fact that I'm I'm not someone who feels strongly about being traditionally observant in that way, I ended up kind of transitioning out of that. And, you know, I would still go to Friday night services. I would still do dinners with friends. I would try to really take off Friday night and Saturday morning, but... You know, I do, and even now today, I do try to kind of really power down on Fridays and Saturdays. I don't have a, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't call myself, you know, halakhically observant of Shabbat. I do mm-hmm. sometimes text emails, I do do other things, but I do try to have a mindset of not the weekday of That's like, amazing. let's make this different. And let me tell you, <clears throat> it was a crit, those months of doing Shabbat in the White House were actually critical for helping me figure out what I wanted to do next. And they actually gave me a space in which I could start to. Th- hear my own voice. As a speechwriter, you're always hearing the voice of the person you are writing for because Mm -hmm. writing for someone like the Obamas, it's not about scripting them, right? No one puts words in the mouths of Barack or Michelle Obama. It's about channeling them, hearing what they want to say, channeling that. And, you know, for the first time, I actually had a little bit of space to listen to my own voice. And I think that's how I decided that I wanted to write this book.
1: Wow, that's a beautiful message about finding your own voice which uh, obviously as a speechwriter for such prominent personalities can be a challenge
0: yes and and
1: shabbat let's let's stay on that for a second so shabbat you know um uh, I, I had the opportunity for the podcast also to interview senator lieberman who's oh. probably the most famous sabbath yes. servant, you know <laughs> right. uh, you know he talks about how when he had to vote in the senate on shabbat he would walk and the secret service would be behind him and you know um what would you say to our a lot of our participants? Okay, they're not writing speeches for the president of the United States, but they are trying to make the most of their careers, and they're trying to get ahead. And some people, you know, is easy. I'm, I'm a, also an attorney, and I remember I worked for a big firm, and they were very understanding as long as you put in your Sundays, you could be off on Saturdays. But um, you're running your own business. That's right. You know, I, I have a student actually with. <laughs> He is. I'm not going to mention his name. He knows who he is. He's probably listening, and he's an amazing <laughs> tennis player. He's a tennis coach, wow. and so much of his personal business was on Saturdays, teaching tennis. And um, it took him about two years for him to give it up and to find enough customers to be able to make it work financially. On you know when it wasn't Shabbat. But what would you say to people in terms of actually the the point you were making about finding your own voice? And I thought that was very beautiful.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, the reality is like we live in a totally consumerist society where all all day long, we are sent these messages again and again of you are not enough. You don't have enough. You need to buy more, but to buy more, you need to work more and you work more so you can buy more so you can work more so you can buy more. It's sort of this endless consumerist cycle that's fueled by feeling like you don't have enough. And there's kind of a relentless dissatisfaction and striving and anxiety that comes with that. You know, that is just the world we live in. And, you know, Shabbat is this quite radical protest against that. It's just this radical 25 hour rejection of that every week where you say, no, actually, I'm not spending money. I'm not working. I'm not producing. I'm not consuming. I'm not liking ads on Facebook. I'm actually rejecting that entire striving, not enough anxious mindset. And for 25 hours, I'm just going to rest in enough. I have enough. I am enough. And I am actually going to focus on things that really matter, which is time with people I love, which is time with the tradition I care about, which is time actually taking moments to listen to voices other than that kind of consumerist voice, right? I think that that's where you actually get a little bit of a chance to reconnect with yourself and with others. You know, it's almost like this humanizing kind of thing, which is why even if you don't, you know, I think that sometimes people are scared of Shabbat because they think it's all or nothing. Right. They think it's either twenty-five hours, super, you know, rigorous in every rule or nothing. And that's really intimidating. Right. Sure, I also tell sure. people, look, you know what? Just try Friday night. Shut down Friday night. Five PM Friday night, six PM Friday night, shut down, see how that feels. And you know what? If that feels good, add Saturday morning. See how it goes. You know, I think you can you can really enter into this, but whatever length of time you take, whether it's like an hour or three hours. I would try to make that really rigorous, like really actually be off the phone, be off the screens, you know, don't be spending money, don't be kind of doing this everyday stuff. Create what Heschel, Rabbi Heschel, called a sanctuary in time, a palace in time. Or I forget it. It's palace, sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Sanctu-
1: he said a sanctuary in time. A sanctuary in time. Yeah. Be,
2: right? Create, cre- create a space where time feels markedly different. And I think that's really the magic of Shabbat. You know what folks who are very traditionally observant are doing is they're plugging up every nook and cranny and crevice through which the ordinary consumerist world can seep, right? All those little rules, you might say, oh, that's so nitpicky or in the weeds, but it's actually necessary to create a different space in a society that's always trying to bombard us with advertising and consumerist stuff. They actually create a very thick container to keep that out for 25 hours. And I think it's worth trying that, even if it's just for a couple hours, just see
1: how it feels wow god you uh, would you be interested in working for the manhattan jewish <laughs> experience that was really well said i mean that was such a good plug and i and I, and it's the truth and i've been saying this all along judaism is not an all or nothing proposition exactly. and especially when it comes to shabbat is so beautiful because it's got something for everyone if you decide you can't do the whole thing you can i mean and and um i it's so well taken by the way your quote from heschel he has a beautiful anyone who's Ever written uh read any of the wonderful writings of Abraham Joshua Heschel, so he wrote a book called The Sabbath that you just quoted from, and in that book he talks about the two types of human dimensions that we are supposed to sanctify according to the Torah time and space and he says that whereas um he's really talking about Western people, we become obsessed with sanctifying space, even our synagogues our we create these cathedrals and and we basically sacrifice time at the altar of space yes. and shabbat ultimately is really about um is really about sanctifying time time in judaism he argues is more important than space and uh, something else i just throw in i might appreciate this from the writings of Nahama Leibowitz, who was a great bible scholar from hebrew university she passed yes. many years ago but she wrote something very very powerful she said that who sanctified time in the Torah versus who sanctified space? Space was sanctified by Moshe when he built and, well, he commissioned Betzalel to build the sanctuary. Right. And it was and when it was time to actually inaugurate the sanctuary and use it, it was Moshe that God commanded to sanctify it. Whatever that means, he anointed it with some oil.
0: Right.
1: Um, time was sanctified by God himself. At the very beginning of time, the sixth, the seventh day of, you know, Shabbat. Um, We say that in the, in the Kiddush. So it's, so I I always try to, to kind of just make us aware of the fact that we are, you know, we're we're just in the world of things. And, and um, he actually uses the word thinginess. (laughs) Yes, right.
2: With with thinginess. (laughs)
1: It's a very cute word. Um, And I just love the way you just put that about, about um, creating a thick enough container To be able to not be bombarded by those images, and I'll tell you the other thing for our population, uh, you know, from MG ears or listening people, our our listeners, the social media is really also
2: awful. It's it's relentless, right? I love I love the way you're talking about this because you're right. That's a perfect example, right? And and the message is always you're not enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, you don't have enough. Other people's lives are better. And it's other people and by
1: the way, it's not it's not companies, it's our friends. It's our because friends. And we always do this also. I went to find a Purim costume yesterday, so I'm like, Gotta post, gotta show <laughs> them how cool I look in this stupid costume. And all of a sudden we're making our friends feel we don't mean to do this. We know yes. I, I was with my um we went away during COVID. We got to go away a little, my family. And my daughter was taking a million pictures, she's sixteen. Um, and I said, honey, just be careful where you share this. Not everybody gets to go to Florida, you know, in the middle of the, I said, you're going to post it and you all of a sudden, I'm going to get a call from your friend's parent. Thanks.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly you know I mean? right. And,
1: and all of a sudden everyone, you know, so I just think that that's added a certain layer of complexity to, and the need for, you know, it's, it's actually easier for us to sell Shabbat since Facebook and, um. Instagram just became so popular because people are really feeling the need to put to put it down. Yes. In your book also you um you mention you said here that as a non-observant Jew in Judaism you discovered the questions are more important than the answers, you said. And you said while many of the answers are quite impressive, it turned out that Judaism, I'm quoting, it's a beautiful quote that Judaism has deep wisdom to offer teachings that have helped me to be kinder, more honest, challenge my lazy and self-righteous assumptions about religion and led me to view the values of modern secular society with a more skeptical eye. Um, It sounds like Judaism helped you doubt some of your doubts, you know, Um, can, can you tell us a little more about that? And, and, and what, what was, what, what is it about our, the the secular part of a society that you're look a little more skeptical about.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I think the the prevailing ethic of modern secular society is pretty much you do you as long as you don't hurt other people too much. Okay. And and that's, and by the way, that's okay for secular law, right? I, I don't think that American law should be, you know, dictating our, you know, deeply dictating our moral values. You know, the ethic of American law is, you know don't infringe on other people's property rights or civil rights don't physically assault them and that's fine but you know where is the part about generosity and and compassion and self-sacrifice and self-restraint and self-discipline and all this stuff like there really is a very thin ethic in modern secular life and i just found a much deeper and more demanding ethic in judaism one which i'm nowhere near meeting at all but you know, there's just so much in judaism about you know, are uh, the demands of sensitivity to others. You know, I, I, I'm, I find the, the old lie that Christianity is a religion of love and Judaism is a religion of law to just be so infuriating because if you actually look at Jewish law, what it is doing is actually dictating quite a rigorous ethic of love, right? Judaism doesn't say, oh, give money to the poor. Okay, well, here's $5, I'm done, right? But Judaism actually is gonna go pretty deep into not just how much you should give, but how you should give it. You know, do, do you do it in a way that empowers people instead of instead of disempowering them? Do you do it in a way that humiliates them or in a way that preserves their dignity? And you start getting into all of these details, which you begin to realize are just they're almost cultivating a kind of vision. You know, when there is a law that says if you have given someone a loan and you know they're not able to repay it, you should actually avoid running into them in the street because you don't want to embarrass them that kind of sensitivity that Judaism is asking that you show to others is quite profound. And I think that, frankly, you know, just the core Jewish idea that we're all created in the divine image, which believe in God, don't believe in God, not relevant. The core idea that every human being is you know, sacred and precious and equal and unique, that is the exact opposite of modern consumerist society, which says your worth depends on how much you produce. Right, right. right. your worth is your value on the capitalists in the market you know, your, your status, your wealth, your fame, how, what you can monetize. And it's a very radical idea to say that, no, 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 actually the person on the street who just asked you for money has the exact same worth as the CEO. Wow. That is not what our society says. Wow. So I think I found a real challenge to kind of modern ethics in Judaism that I think is pretty important right now.
1: That, that is very, very powerful. Um, you know, as a lawyer, I think you'll appreciate that you, you... I don't know if you meant to make this distinction, but I heard it. Yeah. Um, I heard a distinction between duty and, and um, duty slash obligation and rights. See, we exactly. live in a society of rights. Now, you, you articulated this wonderfully when you said, listen, we have separation of church and state, so we can't – you can't have a legal system that's going to impose ethics upon you. Your ethics are supposed to be drawn from your own personal value system, religion, or what have you. For the United States of America to legislate chesed, kindness, yes. would be really to be encroaching on religious law. But the problem is, so many of us grow up with American law or British common law as our, you know, it becomes our religion. Yes. And Judaism teaches, Judaism's all about uh, obligation and demands much more than it is about rights and privileges. Yes. Now, I understand why America needs to be that, and I'm not advocating that should change. The question is, how do we how do we make that shift? Because as an educator, I will tell you, I, I, I often get this look, you know, as long as I'm telling people that the demand is to be kind, but if I tell people <laughs> the demand is to observe Shabbat, to keep a little kosher, <laughs> this, that, and the other, you know, I was like, don't tell me what to do. I want to live in a society, and I'm used to living in a society with rights and privileges, and if you cross that line, I'm going to sue you to enforce those rights and privileges. Whereas, whereas the Torah is all about 613 mitzvot and everybody likes to, uh, you know, sugarcoat the word mitzvah right. to mean a good deed. And we both know it doesn't mean a good deed. It right. means a commandment. It's not the 10 <laughs> suggestions. It's the 10 commandments. You know, how would, how do you, how would you, I mean, I'm asking you for some help here, I guess. Yeah. Um,
2: no, no, you... I I get it. Like, I, I think this is such an important question. And what I would also, what I would say is like, people actually undertake all kinds of regimens to where they restrict their own freedom. You know, they they do like insane juice cleanses and they do really specific diets and they do rigorous workout regimens and they do all these kind of spiritual practices that they, you know, kind of collect from various places. You know, people do this all the time, right? That Actually, people don't have a problem at all with doing it when they think there's a benefit to their either their mental or their physical health, right? I don't I don't think the issue is that people aren't willing to restrict their freedoms, right? Like how many people are, you know, how many of the the folks that you work with, you know, are very careful about what they eat, what they put into their body, how often they work out. Like we have no problem with that, right? We'll see a nutritionist, we'll see a career coach, we will see a personal trainer and we'll do what they tell us to do because we know there's a benefit. And I think that too often people think of Judaism as a lot of rules without a benefit. And, you know, it's easy to look at something like Shabbat that way. And until you've actually experienced it, you know, when I really experienced Shabbat with people who are observing it rigorously, I thought like, wow, there's a huge benefit here. Yeah, there's a cost. Let's be clear. There is a cost to observing Shabbat, but there's a huge benefit. And, you know, I understand that in a traditional, you know, the traditional argument is we do these things because we are commanded by God. You know, I don't necessarily believe that. I think a lot of Jews don't believe that. But I think that another way of doing this is we do these things because they actually make us better human beings, of course, you know they course. actually make us, and frankly, I do think you know the the root you know the root letters of the word mitzvah 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 come from I think it's the same word as like to connect right correct correct yeah mm-hmm. right so it's like there is some sense in which in actually undertaking these these rules, these laws, you do actually connect you connect more to other people. A lot of these things are, are kind of insisting that you be in community. And I do think you connect more deeply to the divine, however you define that, if that is some, a word that resonates to you. You know, when you are actually, you know, 25 hours of Shabbat, where you're not just someone's servant or animal, you're actually kind of claiming your humanity. There is a spiritual feeling to that, that I think you can actually experience, yeah, right? That, I think that's true of a lot of these commitments.
1: Yeah, I just love, I wrote down, I mean, makes sense. You are a speechwriter. Rules without a benefit. I just love that. And 100%, you acknowledging the fact that whenever we see the benefit, we're willing to make sacrifice. I've said this a million times. I've, I don't know why MG in the last, maybe it's because of COVID. I don't know. We have so many doctors coming and medical students coming to MGE oh, right sure. now for some reason. we always had a lot of lawyers. Now we've got a big influx of, of medical students from the various schools in this city. Yeah. And um, I, I always said, like, how much sacrifice does a typical medical student I mean, just think about your first year Harvard Law School. I'm sure it was no picnic. And I remember my first year of law school. It was not simple, but nope. you did it. You sucked it up because you want to get through this and you want to be able to become a great attorney, a doctor, yeah. whatever it is. And then, and by the way, um, oh, my God, I'm just blanking on his name. Gordon helped me out here. Very prominent person in the conservative movement, wrote a great, great article on this. Um, it was after, it'll come to me but it was after a Pew study that reported a really abysmal kind of attitude on the, on the part of young Jews towards traditional Judaism. Um, And he said, why are we surprised? In every other realm of life, we say, if you want to be great, you need a sacrifice. You want to get into a good college. You better buckle down in high school. You want to go to a good graduate school. You better work your tail off in college. And then when it comes to Judaism, (laughs) we just try to make it as convenient as possible and try to do this and try to that. And then we want to know, why don't they take it seriously? Why is, it no, why is nobody, you know, exercising any commitment here? Because we basically told our children that you don't have to be that committed and yes. still be
2: Jewish. And this if- is, you were, you, were, you were singing my song. Like, I, I, I just, you know, I don't think that young Jews are looking for something easy. I think they're looking for something transformative and meaningful. And they are finding it, by the way. Everywhere but Judaism, I mean, yeah. Buddhism, Burning yeah. Man, crystals, right. whatever the, whatever right. people are doing, it is here in Judaism. But you're right. You have to put in a little bit of effort. Not an insane amount of effort, but some effort, right? Judaism, without basic background and literacy and knowledge, Judaism just seems kind of boring and off-putting and strange. Right. But once you actually have the context to understand it, you realize that it's incredibly radical. It's just—it's a radical protest against the worst parts of modern culture, and it is—you inc- know—it's four thousand years of crowdsourced wisdom from millions of pretty smart people. So I don't know. It's like you—you know—put you that against that one guy on the internet who has some guru thing that he wants to share. I—I I don't know. I'm going right. to maybe do the the former. It's just yeah. me. No, you
1: know? I hear you, and I—I I also think it comes down to what you said earlier on in our chat which is us educators doing a better job of packaging ideas, Um, it's hard because as as more and more young Jews get more and more educated and more sophisticated in their fields, and unfortunately not terribly knowledgeable or inspired about Judaism, Judaism will continue to look more and more backward, less and less sophisticated, and it's not going to be it's not going to be taken seriously. And that's what kills me. I have to tell you as someone who is so enthralled, you know, with classical Judaism, and I I just think it's the most brilliant approach to human existence. And it's upsetting watching really smart, well-educated people blowing it off because, and it's not their fault. It's just, it's just the packaging, it's the presentation or the lack thereof, and then rules, rules, rules. Yes. By the way, I want to I, I I say something else, something you, you mentioned before about that, you know, there are some people who think you're just supposed to do it because you're commanded to do it. And I will tell you from my understanding, even those rabbis that emphasize what's called in Hebrew being mitzvah v'osa, being someone who simply is an obedient servant of God, following God's will, not questioning.
0: Right.
1: If you ask that, let's say, rabbinic scholar and Why? You know, why does God want you to do this? What, what do you think? What does any of a, I mean, did God get any, you know, our definition of God does not allow us to believe that God's getting anything from this, you know? So clearly it's being done for us. What are you getting? Why, why am I doing Okay, I'm doing it because God said so. Great. Why? What impact does Shabbat have on you? What kind of discipline does keeping kosher have? Does, you know, all of these great ideas, at the end of the day, you know, i This is my personal, you know, philosophical outlook. All of Judaism is a gift because it's not like God was lonely and needed some entertainment down here on earth to keep himself busy up there. You know, if you really believe this is some sort of God-given guidebook to human existence, you have to, even if you're just doing it because God said so, you have to ask yourself why. (laughs)
2: Hmm. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I also think just almost going at the kind of baseline assumption of what you're talking about, you know, that is, that's one, that is certainly one Jewish conception of God, right? One that many people hold and that's quite meaningful and and very much part of classical Judaism. But, you know, I I think this is actually a big sticking point for a lot of Jews because they'll say to me, well, look, I don't believe that there is an all powerful being in this guy who controls everything. Hence I'm a cultural Jew. What they don't understand is that actually there are many. You know, we don't have dogma of God in Judaism because we have the humility to understand that we are talking about something far beyond the capacity of our tiny little brains to reduce to some, some simplistic little dogma or definition. To do that is idolatry. It's shrinking 100%. the divine to. 100%. So you know, I really appreciate that there are many Jewish conceptions of God based on people's lived experience and their understanding of Jewish tradition. Whether it's the mystical idea that God is everything. Buber's idea of God arising in, when two people are in deep relation and deeply connecting, you know, what arises between them is God. I mean, you can go on and on, but I actually think that's a really fundamental problem that we face is a lot of Jews show up twice a year. They see the kind of man in the sky that they think is being portrayed in the sitter, the prayer book, and they say, like, I'm, I'm out. That's fine. You know, I'll, I'm a cultural Jew, but really I find spirituality in fill in the blank. Right. That is a mistake we have made. We it's it's do it, not it's, talk about God enough. And it we, d- we, it don't, we don't talk
1: about God and those who do talk about God um, speak about God in a very monolithic way. Yes. Uh, if you study Ruff Cook, for example,
2: mm-hmm.
1: very a couple of things that you just said are reminiscent a bit of his, you know, he used to say that, um, you know, if the typical atheist is rejecting whatever he goes, then maybe I'm an atheist too, because I don't really <laughs> subscribe to that concept. I'm studying really? now an amazing work, um, which I was not raised with. I grew up in much more of the uh, Maimodian rational kind of cerebral kind of Judaism. Right. Um, but I've gotten, since I've gotten a little older, I've taken a dip my toes into the world of Kabbalah and Hasidut. And yes. I'm studying now. Um, I've been studying with, I, I have a an older, my oldest son is a little more of a hippy-dippy. And he's gotten me into uh, the writings of um of Schneer Zaman Liati, who's the Balhatanya, He was the first Chabad yes. and Lubavitch rabbi. If you study his work, and I'm teaching a course on this now, you're welcome to come 9.15 every Wednesday night. Cool <laughs> plug. And, uh, you know, his conception of God is really a force that really exists within each and every one of us. Yes. And, that, and that, as opposed to viewing God as this sort of completely external thing out there, and we are here, and he's commanding <laughs> us, and we are being commanded, but there's an aspect of God within us. It's a it's a total game changer. I'm also yes. writing a book. It's a basic Judaism book, and I have four parts on God. And I use that term that you just, you know, the old bearded man in the sky with the control panel sitting there just sort of manipulating everything. And yes. that's a Western notion of God. It's very off-putting.
2: and It may yes. not be
1: true <laughs> as, far as, as far as Torah is concerned. And, and yes. people operate that, and, and that's why people shut down when you say God. So one of my other teachers, um, I don't know if you've ever read any of his books. They're amazing. David Aaron.
2: I, it's so funny. I actually, you know, I, I did a conversation with him at one point, I believe. Oh. Very, very thoughtful guy. I was really yeah. moved by a lot of what he said. Yeah.
1: It's actually his birthday today, so we'll wish oh. him a happy birthday. <laughs> but Rabbi David Aaron, he's, um, MG has been bringing groups to his organization. It was called Israelite. Now he has his own school for day school graduates, a gap year program. Yeah. He's brilliant, and it's a totally different way of looking, not just at God, but at Judaism. Because it all starts with your, you know, so that's something, oh, that's huge. That's, that's, yeah. a, that's a game changer um, just, for a lot of just people.
2: Understanding that whatever the divine is, we don't know. It's beyond us. All of these, the, you know, theologies and theories, these are just concepts that, elect, that allow us to connect with the divine, right? So if that man in the sky concept works for you, if it makes you feel connected, great, go with it. If the mystical idea that God is everything, you're God, I'm God, we're part of one thing, if that works, great, go with it. Right, it doesn't matter what. Well, I would find
1: just... I would fine tune that last part because mm-hmm. <laughs> you mentioned idol worship before you. So, in other words, the idea it's that we're all really... God, right? No, no, because there is, and that's well, it gets complicated. The concept of pantheism and panentheism, right? Because um, whatever, I'm I struggle with some of that, and, and they're they're big yeah. issues.
2: But the idea that we're all that there is this ultimate source of life, of which we're all part, right? That's not 100%. saying that any one person is God right? Any right. Unique right. person is God. But right. I think that that is, you know, each of these things gives you a little something. Each of them gives you a little pinpoint in the picture, right? right. And no one can see the whole picture. You're just yeah. trying to yeah. get glimpses.
1: Yeah, I have, uh, we have different rabbis on our staff and we have our own little arguments, you know, two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> and um, so th- this is like a, uh, whatever, this is a really important conversation because let me just ask you one last yeah. While we're talking about Jewish theology, um, chosenness—you speak about chosenness in the book—and um, you make it clear chosenness doesn't mean choice. What, well, what, talk, talk about that a little?
2: Yeah, you know, I think so often, you know, Jews are uncomfortable with this idea of chosenness because they think it means that we are superior, right? It's, they think it's saying that Jews are the superior people, and that's really not what it actually means. Like, you know, I, I think that idea is kind of a a misperception. I think the idea really is that we have a particular relationship with the divine as does, as do Buddhists, as do Christians, as do Hindus, right? Every religious and faith and cultural tradition, they have their own relationship with the divine and they are all in some way saying, oh, we're, we're kind of chosen for this relationship. This is our relationship. So I, you know, I think that understanding it as a declaration of superiority is, is not correct. It's more a definition of specificity of a certain, uniqueness. And I think that, you know, by each of these traditions, bringing that their own uniqueness to the world, you know, I think, I think it was Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi. I'm not mm-hmm. sure, but someone said that there is a, there's a moral ecosystem and a religious ecosystem in the world. And every tradition is bringing something different and important to that. And if you lose any one of them, you actually lose some, some great moral wisdom. And I, I think that's to me, what chosenness is about. I, I also think we're really more the choosing people You know, you, you either choose to engage in Judaism or you don't, no one has to be Jewish in modern emancipated society, right? I'm a citizen of the U S that is, that is post-emancipation. That's kind of the deal. I can choose whether or not to practice Judaism, to engage in Judaism. And so I think that's actually the question today is not, are we chosen to be some superior people? I don't think that's true. It's, you know, we believe we have some, a specific mission in the world. And do you want to be part of that?
1: Beautiful. I mean, it's funny because I guess the word, it's a lot of this is words, you know, as a speech writer, you'll appreciate linguistics, you know, chosen, it seems to imply some sort of natural superiority. Like, you know, there's this special Jewish gene, you know, right. but um, if you look at the next, if you look at the verse in the Torah, actually, that speaks about Am Hanivchar, which means the chosen people, the verse says that we're supposed to be a Mamlechet Kohanim, a kingdom of Kohanim. Now, if you look at what a Kohen's job was within the community, so Kohen's job was this priestly caste that was supposed to be the ministers in the temple and the educators.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, are they better? Is a Kohen better than an Israelite? No. Just because they get the first Aliyah before the Israelite, you know, and I come to a synagogue and if I'm a Skon resident in some sure there's like, are you a Kohen? I'm like, no, I'm just a, an Israelite. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we, we think a Kohen is better. Course. You know, it just means that they have they have a different job. And I always say I have a lot of teachers who come to MJ. I'm like, is the teacher better than the student? No, you you trained, you have something to share, and that I think is the challenge. Because if we are supposed to be the teachers, the kohanim of the world, then hopefully we have something unique that mm-hmm. you know to share. You know, because it does the the concept of chosenness does presuppose there's something to share. Otherwise, like then you're just What? What? You know?
2: Yeah, and I think another, you know, another basic fact to sort of undercut the idea that this is about superiority would be the Torah. I mean, take a look at if you actually read the document, like you said, thirty-six times is is love the stranger, right? The stranger is the non-Israelite. There is a real sense that the stranger is as worthy as the Israelite, so there's no superiority there. I would also point out that some of the most righteous characters in the Torah are non-Jews. Moses's life is made possible a series of people who are not Jewish, right? From Pharaoh's daughter to Yitro to, you know, there are a lot of, to the midwives who uh, many commentators believe were Egyptians. You know, there's a lot of people who make the Jewish people's existence possible. So I I think of the idea that there's a a sense of Jewish superiority, I think that's quite incorrect and quite disproven by the text of the Torah.
1: Yeah, that's actually... um... There's a little of a tension in, within the writings of the rabbis uh, because if you look at the more medieval Jewish rationalists like the Rambam, um, or later Svarno, the great Italian commentator, Rabbi Hirsch Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, uh, in the 19th century, they all speak about chosenness as a certain mission, purpose, but not implying any kind of natural sense of superiority. When you start getting into, I believe in being intellectually honest, when you start right. getting into Kabbalah,
2: uh-huh.
1: eh, things change a little. <laughs> 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 things change a little. It's actually very interesting. Yeah. Now, it's a subtle difference. It's a subtle difference. Right. The Balatanya speaks about a little of a difference between a Jewish and a non-Jewish soul, which can make a lot of people very, very uncomfortable. I, I questioned my rabbi, who was a great, great Torah sage, Rabbi Joseph Grimblatt. And he, I asked him what he thinks. You know, and he brought up, he says, well, how do you deal with conversion then? Let's say there is a difference between a Jewish and non-Jewish soul, and then someone who isn't Jewish converts to Judaism. What happens? So as they are coming out of the mikvah, all of a sudden their soul, you know, so then the Maharal, one of the great more mystically uh, minded uh, rabbis, you know, suggests the concept my rabbi called it the forblundet neshama theory, which sounds forblundet is like the confused soul. Like he got in the wrong line. He was supposed to be Jewish, but he wasn't. It sounds a little Jackie Mason. I don't know. It's it's very, very difficult. So it makes a lot more sense that we have different roles and we have different jobs. And I'm sorry, how how do you say that 99.9% of the world is just of non-Jews are just sort of incidental
2: right you know i mean, I mean? It's, it just doesn't and look you can find any you can argue you can find all kinds of arguments in jewish tradition right i you know there even beyond kabbalah that you definitely see arguments for jewish superiority in parts of judaism but i think and you're much more of a scholar than i am but you know i think like on balance it's maybe a little bit more toward the chosen for a special mission idea than I, that, I, I, I
1: i have a i have a chapter in the book on this and that's. Mm-hmm. That's the thesis basically of yeah. that chapter, because I think that is the uh, consensus of opinion. But I, I would love to, um, I, I just love what you said, and I think it's a good way to maybe bring our conversation to a close a little about choosing. Because, mm-hmm. okay, whether you're chosen or not chosen, interesting academic issue, but the real question is are you going to choose to be Jewish? You made a choice, mm-hmm. and I love when successful people choose <laughs> be, um, to be more Jewish because. It, it sort of fights against that Marx opiate of the masses, you know, right. religion's a crutch so uh. the people who couldn't really make it. And I know that that was more of like a, you know, an idea that was became popular in the, in the world of communism and in other societies. But the Western version of that is that, you know, why do I need religion? I'm doing great. Nice. I got, you know, uh, my life is this, My li- you know, and I've been, MG's twenty-two years old now. When I, it's not right to strut around the, the the more successful and attractive people that are have taken a turn to Judaism and you know like, I have a woman, she's amazing, she works for the post office, that's what she does. She's a post right. office worker. She comes to MG all the time. Like she's like you said before, her soul is on the, the, the same level as someone who went, sorry, Harvard. You know, right. and there's no difference, but. I feel that sometimes we have to, I have to sort of prance around people like yourself. I'm saying it in a positive way because we need to dispel this notion that religion is for people who couldn't otherwise make it or, you know, can't figure out, you know, a more sophisticated philosophical approach to human existence. So they're going to tap into their old, you know, Bubby and Zadie's religion that really doesn't make any sense. And so I, I just think your, your your book and your whole message is incredibly inspirational because You know, for someone, that's why I don't know if you've ever read um, Herman Woke's book, Um, This Is My God.
2: I started it. Yeah, I did.
1: I think think you'd really like it. The the other people don't know this, but he wrote it like in his 20s. Wow. And he he was already an an important playwright uh, and author, and he had it all. He didn't need to be Jewish, but he became more observant because he saw the value in it. And he saw how, together with his success in the material world, uh, he could have a, just a better life. And and it would add a certain level of profundity. He has a great line. He says that, you know, without Judaism, it left out the most important figure in my life, he said, who was my grandfather.
0: Hmm.
1: And um, that was a little more of a sentimental thing. And that got him to look at it. Hmm. But once he started looking at Judaism, and the, the book, by the way, it's another great book called This is My God, Herman Woke. By the way, he lived close to where you live. Oh. He, lived, he lived in Washington. He davened at Kesher. I didn't know that. It's like the modern Orthodox synagogue in Washington. Uh, He was 102 when he died. He just died like two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. He was an unbelievable guy. But um, I want to thank you because um, not just for coming on here, but for being vocal about your passion and your excitement and what Judaism has brought to you because you you have um, people are listening to you and for good reason. Thank you. and you're you're doing what i think is a, a tremendous kiddush hashem really sanctifying hashem's name in the world by and and being honest about it you're not you know sugarcoating you're telling people what you think we maybe don't agree on every single little point but i think your whole tone and your whole message is just very very inspirational
2: thank you thank you for having me it's such a joy to be in conversation with you i would love to keep talking because this was <laughs> a lot of fun and i really appreciate you taking the time today
1: Thank you and um did you come out with another book you're coming out with another book
2: No nope oh, I, I, I thought, would like okay. to I would like I would like Scott, to eventually Scott write said a book something. Scott said something <laughs> Oh no I am I would like to write another book focused on God and spirituality but you I'm should haven't made a lot of progress on it during the pandemic. I hope to. I hope to make right. more. Yeah, because right. I would like to.
1: You should. You should. Absolutely. And you, you should you. just continue to be successful and to oh, just do you. the amazing work you're doing. Thank you so much for your time. It
2: was oh, awesome. Thank you for having me. This is great.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wiles. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
2: Thanks again for joining us.